Good morning. What is one of the most shocking and unbelievable things that has ever happened to you? Slava, uh, who's not here this morning, he gave me permission to tell this story about him, uh, one, of the, one of these events in his life <clears throat> that was shocking and unbelievable. A few years ago, he and a business partner uh, went in together to build a house. And they built the house in order to sell it and make a profit. So they built the house, but the problem was that the house did not sell. And it sat there on the market for a few years, and they eventually decided to sell it at a great loss in order to stop the flow of the losses that had been happening over those years. But what that ended up looking like for Slava was that it ended up that he owed his business partner $200,000. He had to sell his own house and move far away out of town. He was praying like crazy, and his perspective on his dreams for his family, for his business, were in ruins. But unknown to him, his business partner came to him and said, I see that you have a family, and this debt is crushing to you. I do not want this to be over your head any longer. I will pay the $200,000 and you can be free from this. How do you think he felt when he left that meeting? (laughs) He was shaking his head in joy and saying, unbelievable that this happened. This changes everything. This morning, we are going to see A very similar truth, much more grand, of what God does for us. See, each of us bears a crushing debt of sin that we cannot repay. And when you rightly understand that debt, your outlook on life is pretty dour. It is ruined. Because one day that debt will come due fully and you cannot repay it. Yet the beauty and the majesty of God's love is that he provides a means of escape and bears that debt for you. And we're going to see that clearly here in this morning's scripture. It will change everything. If you've been with us, you know that we are going through the book of Isaiah. We are in chapter 52 and 53 this morning. But in the 40s chapters and the early 50 chapters, there is this mounting expectation of hope. In Isaiah. And it begins, you could go back to chapter 40, verse 2, where God says to his people that your iniquity has been pardoned. And if I want to point out another verse, 51, verse 8, God says, The vindication I will provide is permanent. So what God is saying to the people before this point is that your sins are going to be forgiven and it's going to be a permanent forgiveness. Now, up until this point, Isaiah has said those things, but we don't know how God is going to make that a reality until this morning. We are going to see this come true through the mission of the servant. This morning, we're going to use a different translation than we normally do. We're going to look at the NET, the New English Translation, and there's a handout in your uh, packet there if you want to follow along. We're going to read Isaiah 52, verse 13, and it's also up on the screen. Look, my servant will succeed. He will be elevated, lifted high, and greatly exalted, just as many were horrified by the sight of you. 
He was so disfigured, he no longer looked like a man. His form was so marred, he no longer looked human. So now he will startle many nations. Kings will be shocked by his exaltation, for they will witness something unannounced to them, and they will understand something they had not heard about. Who would have believed what we just heard? When was the Lord's power revealed through him? He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of parched soil. He had no stately form or majesty that, we, that might catch our attention, no special appearance that we should want to follow him. He was despised and rejected by people, one who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised and we considered him insignificant, but he lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God and afflicted for something he had done. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds, we have been healed. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed off on his own path. But the Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not even open his mouth. He was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? Indeed, he was cut off from the land of the living. Because of the rebellion of his own people, he was wounded. They intended to bury him with criminals, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb because he had committed no violent deeds, nor had he spoken deceitfully. Though the Lord desired to crush him and make him ill, once restitution is made, he will see his descendants and enjoy long life, and the Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. Having suffered, he will reflect on his work. He will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. My servant will acquit many, for he carried their sins. So I will assign him a portion with the multitudes. He will divide the spoils of victory with the powerful. Because he willingly submitted to death and was numbered with the rebels when he lifted up the sin of many and intervened on behalf of the rebels. If you look at your outline, we are going to cover this section in three points. First, we're going to start with the shock of the servant. The very first statement that's made here in verse 13 of chapter 52 is a statement about victory. My servant will succeed. It's a... It's a uh, his, his mission will be successful. He will be victorious. He will be elevated, lifted high, and greatly exalted. This is a position of honor and esteem. And just in this first verse, it's not shocking at all that God's servant would have great victory and be highly esteemed. But the question is, what do you imagine this victorious servant, this hero, to look like? The next two verses tell us, and it's shocking. Verse 14, he was so disfigured, he no longer looked like a man. And so what we have here, we have a man. We don't have a spirit being. We don't have an angel. We have a human just like us. His form is so marred, he no longer looked human. Somehow in this assured plan of success, this servant experiences something that disfigures him. To the point that he's not even recognized as human anymore. What is that going to take? Verse 15. This also is a shock because 
it startles many nations. Kings will be shocked. They're stunned by this human who gets disfigured, this servant of God. And they're saying, him? He gets to be exalted? The disfigured man? Another translation of verse 15 says that the kings of the earth shut their mouths at this servant. And the idea is the same, that this this news of this servant is a tremendous shock, and so they are speechless. Notice at the end of verse 15 that they see and witness something unannounced to them and understand something new regarding the servant. And this catches their attention. What does this mean? Well, we know that God's people, as we look at them, Israel, they were in general in rebellion to God. And the people of the world who did not know God and weren't following him, they were in rebellion to God too. So you have all these rebels. What do you do if you're a powerful king with a, uh, a very powerful army at your disposal and you have all these rebels? Well, you use that army to kill the rebels and get rid of them, right? But you don't see that happening here. What you see, something completely different. You see a man come in humility, getting disfigured, and getting greatly exalted in order to accomplish God's mission. And we'll get a little bit more of that mission as we go along. But his enemies are shocked by this servant's exaltation. In verse 1 of 53, it goes on, Who would have believed what we just heard? We don't know much about the mission But we do know that people's reactions are along those lines. Who would have believed what we just heard? In other words, the prophet Isaiah is saying, unbelievable what this servant has gone through and what it means. It is unbelievable. Whatever the servant does in this mission is so grand, so amazing, that it stuns world leaders into silence and causes this prophet of God to respond with unbelievable. What God is doing through the servant has gotten their attention. And we see the point. This is the shock of the servant. What does this mean for us? Well, what God is doing here should not only get kings and world leaders' attention and Isaiah's attention, it should get ours as well. You know, all too often, I don't think that we're, we're shocked and amazed like we should be. As I've reflected on this, I've realized there's been so many times where I've been in a sermon daydreaming or at Bible study and getting bored or distracted or being more interested in the news than in what God is doing in the world or getting distracted and not even wanting to read my Bible. What am I doing? What am I doing? Every day, this, this awesomeness, this, this unbelievableness of the shock of the servant is available that permeates every area of life. And yet I'm not taking in the wonder because God's wonder of his goodness will never run out. For example, you have probably read this chapter before if you've been at church at all. This is, this is one of the biggies in the Bible. So you probably have read it. But I can guarantee you that you are not fully done appreciating 
the value of these words, even though you've read them many times. So I encourage you to take time to be speechless, to bask in the shocking unbelievableness of the goodness of this servant. So what is this plan that will shock the world and be the success of the servant? Well, it's our next point. It is the suffering of the servant. Let's look at verse 2. He sprouted up like a twig, like a root out of parched soil. He had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention. So he has no stately form or majesty. He's kind of very ordinary. And this ordinary one is on this mission for God, like we were just looking at. And verse 3, so he's not just ordinary. He is despised and rejected. He has pain and acquainted with illness. It says he was despised twice in verse 3 and rejected. How did people reject him? Verse 3, they hid their faces from him. And again, verse 3, it says, in all we considered him insignificant. This is God's servant when he comes on the scene. Think about this. At this point, God, who is in heaven with all authority, looking down on his servant, being rejected, does not call his heavenly army to bear on these enemies who would dare treat his servant this way. God is silent, and his servant and the description of him continues on. Look at verse 4. Just as God doesn't give in, the servant doesn't give in as well. After being despised, it ignores. He gets being punished. In verse 4, it looks like he's being attacked by God. At the end of verse 4, it says, it looks like it's something that he had done, like he did the wrong thing, so that's why God is attacking him. And in verse 5, this, this punishment that, that the servant is taking on turns to a physical one. He's no longer just rejected or made fun of or anything. This is a physical punishment. Verse 5, he's wounded and he's crushed. His life is under physical harm. So, so surely now God's servant, with all of his power, at the physical harm of his suffering servant, would jump in to save him, kill the enemies, rescue his suffering servant. But we see no such action. And his servant continues. Verse 7. He is treated harshly and afflicted, even though he did not open his mouth. And here we begin to see in verse 7, through this servant, the intentional nature of his mission. He didn't open his mouth because this suffering was no accident. There was silence from heaven for a reason. This was on purpose. The servant enters into this rejection and into this treatment voluntarily and willingly. And if all of that wasn't enough, go on to the next verse, verse 8. When it comes time to try the servant in court, what does he get? 
he gets an unjust trial. And it says there the commentary, who even cared? No one even cares. There's no people screaming, injustice! There's no mass protests on the street. As if these are the things he should deserve, but he doesn't get them. And then in verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living. And in verse 9, he's buried with criminals. So what we have now is that the servant is dead and buried after this unjust trial. Now at this point, let me ask you. Servant is dead and buried. Does this look like a successful mission by the servant? Would God look at this, the actions of this servant and elevate him and lift him high and greatly exalt him? Why would God allow this to happen to his servant? Do you know the answers to those questions are basically on every verse? Look at verse 4 again. And here's the reason why. He lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain. In verse 6, it is we, all of us, that have wandered off as sheep and strayed. The point of the mission was to be a rescue mission. That is why the servant did all of this. I was reminded of this this past week very keenly when um, you know, just things happen in life, and I, w- I was reminded of some past relational sins where I was selfish in a relationship, and things that I'm ashamed of came up again, and you know, just feeling the guilt of that, and working on the sermon reminded that the servant not only knew about those sins ahead of time, but went through this process to forgive them, and that is where I can rest in. You know, those, those, as I think about those situations, those were my cutting words and my selfishness coming through. But it was the servant who took the punishment for them. Now, if you would maybe uh, quiet your heart, maybe even close your eyes and consider with me the list of injustices that happened to this servant. When, when we consider our own lives, we think, no, no, this, this can't be. It was me. It was I was the one who lied to my friend. It was me that that gossiped. It was me that put on the phony act to impress someone else. It wasn't him. He was not guilty. He's the innocent one. Why would you do this, Lord? Why would you cause the sin of us of me to attack him? You see, the servant is the substitute for sinful people to take their punishment. In verse 5, so that the object of his love can be made well, can be cleaned and healed. See, God's entire mission for the servant is to provide lasting healing and cleansing for his people. Their debt is paid for, and this is the shock from point one that stuns the world. It is accomplished by the disfigurement and death of the innocent servant. And those who who see it clearly say, unbelievable, unbelievable. 
you see this servant, he doesn't have a name here in this chapter, but it is Jesus. If you would put Luke 22 up on the screen. Jesus was pretty clear that this Isaiah 53 passage was about him. He says this, For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. What we have here is the greatest injustice the world has ever seen. The innocent servant taking on the sin of mankind. And what does it look like? It looks like taking a man and turning, in it, turning him into something that no longer looks even human. It's ugly, it's bloody, and it's a nightmare. And what words on a scroll 700 years before Jesus' time become his reality as he hangs on the cross. That nightmare of sin is swallowed up in his body as he offers himself up as the sacrifice, the substitute for the sin of the world so that those who believe in him may be released from the dead. How can we apply this? I have two applications for you to consider. The first is to remember the cost of sin. Remember the cost of sin. We often have no idea how much sin costs. Yet we get a glimpse of it in this passage when we see the suffering that was made on our behalf. And you could even do this in that little note there. You can circle all the we's and the hours, and I'll just list some of them off for you. It was our illnesses, our pain, our despising attitude, our misjudgment of him and the servant's purpose, our rebel hearts, our sin, and our wandering astray. This passage reminds us of our part. It was our guilt. We incurred the cost. Perhaps you've seen this happen before. It's a great illustration of this. Um, sometimes at high schools, when there is a drunk driving accident by one of the members of the high school, or maybe they were texting and driving and they crashed the car, maybe even people died, they'll take that crushed up car, and you know what they'll do with it? They'll tow it to the, to the lawn of the school and put it right out front so that every student who walks by there from that moment on, they see that crushed car and they see the cost of those choices very visibly. And what we have here in our passage this morning is the servant who is our car on that lawn. We look at him and we see the cost of Sin. We see how Jesus clearly portrayed on the cross. Why? Verse 5. He was crushed because of our sins. And every time we see that crushed Savior, we're reminded, my sin is the reason. So remember the cost of sin. The cost that the servant took on your behalf. Second application, respond to the substitute. Did you ever get something big, like a big gift that you weren't expecting? And uh, you, you were very thankful. Perhaps you wrote a thankful note, thank you note. I got a big gift once, and it was so big that I, I wrote a thank you note, and I said thank you, but it didn't feel like it was enough. And there's not a whole lot more I could do 
But I said thank you. And I was overwhelmed. Talk about this gift here of life. How do you respond to this servant stepping in your place? Well, it certainly is about being thankful. But it's not about repaying the debt. See, God wants us to be thankful, but he wants more than that. He wants your life. He wants you to be forgiven, to be clean, and to have him. To repent and turn away from sin and to give it up to have new life. Or in other words, like Slava's friend told him, I want you to be free of this and free of this debt. That's what I needed to hear this past week when I was thinking about those, those past sins and feeling the weight of it. God saying, I want you to be free from this. The servant died for those sins. And what that means for each of us, for you and me, is that there's no sin too big, too small that you've ever committed or could commit that would be beyond reach of the servant's substitution for your sin to bring you healing. So take this offer. Don't turn it down. And don't let sin define you any longer. Respond to the servant. So the servant suffers and dies to bring healing and cleansing. But this is not the end of the story. Our final point, the success of the servant. Verse 10. The Lord desired to crush him and make him ill once restitution is made. This idea of restitution in verse 10 means that justice has been satisfied. Or in other words, the mission has been accomplished. Because you see here what happens next in the next phrase. He will do descendants and enjoy long life. Catch that? The servant is no longer dead and buried. He's alive and he has descendants. And who are these descendants? You know, descendants are family members. They are those who believe. So the mission is done and his family is growing and he is alive. One commentator captured this uh, just, just perfectly when we think about our, our, our interaction with the Savior. He says this, he says, We stray as sheep but return as children. We stray as sheep but return as children children. The mission's accomplished. The family is growing and he is alive. What does that mean? Verse 11, he will reflect on his work. That's because it's complete. And he will be satisfied when he has, understands what he has done. And there we are very, going back to the very beginning of this chapter when my servant will succeed, what God says in verse 13. It's all done. And verse 12, God blesses him with the spoils of this victory. This is time to celebrate. This is the heavenly victory party. And why is that? The author goes out of his way to repeat himself in verse 12 of why this is at the very end. Because he was willing, willingly submitted to death 
and was numbered with the rebels when he lifted up the sin of many and intervened on behalf of the rebels because they could not on their own. See, the punishment for sin was put on Jesus. He is the one that suffered and died. Through his once and for all sacrifice, he offers forgiveness of sin. He was the one that's the ultimate fulfillment of those verses before in Isaiah. Remember Isaiah 40, verse 2, their iniquity would be forgiven. 51, 8, that forgiveness will be permanent. Those come together in Jesus. Just as he is resurrected from the dead and has new life, that is the promise for all of those who put their faith in Jesus. Life now and life eternal. And in that eternal, eternalness, when this life fades and we move on, that's entering that victory party, that celebration, that glorious party for the servant. Jeff mentioned this this morning, uh, but Ella Ostendorf passed away this week. If you knew her, she was a dear sister in the Lord. She has passed on to that great and glorious worship service for the Savior. What does all this mean? The success of the servant, what does it mean for us who are still alive here? Like I said, the atoning work of sin could only be accomplished through Jesus, and his mission is complete. But that does not mean that people who follow him don't have a mission to take up. If you remember Matthew 28, Jesus told his own disciples to go make disciples of all the nations. Now, if I were to translate that into Isaiah 53 language, it would be this. Go get more descendants for the servant. Or another way, go get more family members. Get more people to come in and join the family of God, the family of this servant. We get the awesome job to help more people come into this family and tell them that their debt can be erased. And I'll tell you what, people are longing to come. They want to be satisfied. They want to have their debt forgiven. It wasn't that long ago that some students on campus were going up to people they didn't know They were doing this on purpose. They were going up to strangers and asking them, how long do you think, or how long would you say that partying satisfies your heart? And they got all kinds of answers. They got some people who said 30 seconds. Some people said a few hours. Some people even said all night until the next day. I'm just totally satisfied to the next day. Then they asked a follow-up question. What if there was a way to be truly satisfied that never ended, would you want to know about it? And they said every single person they talked to answered that question with, if there was such a thing, then yes, I would want to know about it. People want to know what truly satisfies. They may not know about their debt, but we can make them aware of it and aware of their forgiveness of it. And you and I that have experienced this mercy and this grace and say unbelievable when we consider it. We don't need any more motivation if we've been changed to go tell other people about this great salvation. 
Perhaps we need only to ask ourselves, what's holding us back? What's stopping me from telling and sharing about this great salvation? See, we get to be descendants here in verse 10 and enjoy long life just as the servant does. And we get to expand his family. So the servant is completely successful in his mission. He has succeeded. He is lifted high, exalted, and elevated. And this is Jesus, our Savior. He deserves all worship and glory. To end our time, I would like you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to read verse 5 and then pray to end us. And when I pray, if the... uh, Uh, I believe Tom is coming up next, so he can come. Verse 5. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds, we have been healed. Father, you sent Jesus on purpose, before we were expecting him or knew about him, to take care of the sin of the world. Our guilt, our choices that led to disastrous results that prove us to be rebels and those who hate God and shake our fists at him and do not even care, just like the passage says, so what about the servant? Oh Lord, you loved us through that rebellion. Help us to be shocked daily, moment by moment, at the wonder of your love for us in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead us to those whom you're working in, Help us to minister to one another in this family, with this news, and those outside to bring them in. God, we pray all this in your name. Amen.